Hey, we're going to do something starting out here that I just just came out of the Christmas. Yeah, all the kids are going to Bible uh, Explorers. Uh, we put together, we put these in the, in the Christmas baskets that we took to the neighbors. But it's kind of a place card for Old Pat, Pat Baptist Church. It's got my phone number on it. It's got the address and all the Sunday morning services. And, and what we're going to do from this point on, there's some out here if you want to take some and pass them out. But if you're a visitor, Kelly and uh, Jamie, come on up here. If you're a visitor here today, we're going to give you one of these. And uh, uh, so I know we got the two boys here, and then we got Ronnie back here. And uh, give one to Candace, too. She's right there, Kel. Candace, with, uh, Ronnie. Um, is any other visitors here that I missed? or you're, you're, We're going to get you sooner or later. But anyway, okay. Good deal. We'll pass those out to the boys and the guys back there, and we'll be good to go. Now, last week... Uh, you'll remember we closed out chapter 10 of the Gospel of John. And, and, you know, what a great learning chapter that was. We now understand, you know, God's plan, uh, both in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, and then what he's doing in the New Testament with the church, you and me. And, uh, and how that in both cases, you know, the devil brought opposition and uh, to them and to stop them and uh, through the nations in the Old Testament and you remember at the first coming of Christ they are under the iron heel of Rome and through religion uh, at the second coming of Christ and uh, this is what he tried to do Uh, and we know uh, and we now have all the examples of showing you how that history always repeats itself if there's one single thing that God's people need to understand. It is the fact of the repetitiveness of history. And uh, you're going to find that uh, uh, over the years, you know, I, I used to go to churches. Oh, man, I did this for 10, 15, probably 20 years. I would go to churches and I would do a, a in-depth church history study. We'd start on Sunday morning and I uh, go Sunday morning, Sunday night, and I would tell the people that's going to be at least two, three hours every time we go. And the place would be packed. And I would go Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and finish up on Wednesday night. And I obviously, obviously you can't get into it like we'll get into it in Bible Institute, but what I did do was give them a really good in-depth understanding of the things that they needed to understand about uh, church history. And I always started with the aspect of understanding time because that is so crucial. And most people don't think about time. Time is something that we look at our watch or we look at the calendar or we have an appointment. But most people don't see time from a biblical standpoint. In your Bible, and I told you this Thursday night when we come through quickly the thing on numerology, I told you that the number three was the number of completion. Everything that God does, he does by a number of threes. And, of course, it's based on the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's complete. And I I would tell these people that time has three parts to it. And for to understand the completeness of anything in your life or my life or what God is doing, you have to understand these three. Time is past, time is present, and time is future. Now, if I would have my blackboard up here and I would draw just a straight line across that blackboard, there's three aspects to that that line I'm drawing. There's a length to it, there's a width to it, and then if you add a microscope, there's a depth to it. 
And if you took any one of those, I would tell them this, if you took any one of those aspects off that line, you couldn't have the line. If you lose any one of the three aspects to history, then you have no history. And you're where God's people are at today, completely without any understanding of where they come from. And I'd use this to show them the importance of church history in their life. Try to get them to move to find out, you know, what's going on. I'd say, if you don't know where you come from, your roots, I would tell them this. You can't know where you're going, your direction in life. And I'd say, if you don't know where you've come from and you don't know where you're going, please don't tell me you know where you're at as far as God's plans for your life. And that's not just true of church history, but in everything that God is doing. We have come to the place that we are so, as God's people, one-dimensional. All we see is the day and age we live in and what goes around our world and what directly affects us. The book of Ecclesiastes makes it very clear that and will show us that there is a repetitive cycle to history. And he says that there's nothing new under the sun. He also says that when somebody says, look, this is new, it's already been a long time ago because history always makes a full circle and repeats itself. The Bible itself is a full circle. It starts with the tree of life in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and then you wind up with the tree of life in Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22, like we talked about Thursday night. The circuit of history is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God moving down through history. The problem is, <laughs> the circuit of history, Holy Spirit of God, most of God's people have been short-circuited. They don't have a clue. And I, I showed you, coming through here, the greatest single aspect uh, in our last section was how that Jesus himself told us that the absolute importance of God doing a work in our lives I get it. We read that, we talk about that, and we just take that in stride like we do most everything else in the Bible and don't see the impact of that verse. And I told you last week, it's not by the example of our power. We think it is today. It's not about your education, how, much, how smart you are. It's not about how big your church is. Uh, it's not about you know, you know, your status as some uh, degree or some position that you hold. Those are all examples of our power. And I told you last week that the real key for all of us will be the power of our example. Who we really are and what God is doing through us. That's the reality of it. Now, <laughs> I get it. This is unheard of today and probably certainly unpopular today. But the bottom line, that is what it is. The fact that Jesus had the power of God's example in his life that the leaders of Israel did not have. Now, this was the fundamental problem. This was the issue. They had the position, they had the status, but they had no power. They had power to rule over the people, but they had no power of the example of God in their life. And boy, I'm telling you, this is what you find today. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is why they hated him. This is why they could not stand him. This is why when Jesus showed up, they had to get rid of him or get him out of the way 
because, because he was the real deal and he had the power of God's example that they did not have, they couldn't put up with it. It's places like this, things like this in the Bible, that I was taught really the inside of ministry. Unfortunately, most pastors, certainly most people, they only see the ministry from the outside. They never see the inner workings of, of the cause and the effect of things. And over the years, you know, I, 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 I have looked at passages like this and many, many others, and God used them to teach me never to look at anything just from the outside. Now, I love all of you, and I, I, I want the best for all of you, and I would do anything for all of you to help you. But I want you to know it's not what I look at on the outside that makes you valuable to this ministry. It's what's on the inside. Many of God's people today want to have, want to have the example of power, but very few of them have the power of an example. That's what makes the difference. And over the years, you know, I've watched. You know, I, I pay attention to everything. I may not seem like I do. I love giving the, giving the, giving the uh, you know, the, uh, 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 giving the impression that I'm really just a redneck from Raytown who doesn't figure anything out. I like that status because then people don't take you too seriously and then you can sneak in the back door and find out what's going on. But the bottom line is this. I watch everything. I've looked at everything over the years in ministry. I wasn't a guy who just got in ministry. And I, I, looked at, I looked at some of the great ministries across this country. The guys are gone now. They're all going home to be with the Lord. I saw the great ones, and I saw the bad ones. I saw what it took to make a great one, and I saw what it took to make a bad one. And I pulled back that veil and I looked on the inside of why God's people do some of the things they do, react to some of the things that they do, make some of the decisions that they make in their life. And I run it right back to John chapter 10 and other places. Over the years, I've watched how and why people will leave a good church. And it's all across this country. You know, it's a, you see a pattern develop. And almost without exception, through my watching this for over 50 years now, I mean, it was back in Canton, it was, it was in churches there, it was when I first came to Kansas City, it's, it's everywhere in time. It's the nature of the ministry and people. But almost without exception in every case, they will do exactly what the leaders of the nation of Israel did. And the pattern of John chapter 10 becomes so clear. I had a friend of mine, he's still a friend of mine, who uh, is, uh, is, is, is a pastor. And when it comes to the Bible, he's as solid in the book as you could ever want. And he has or has a really good Bible-believing church uh, and ministry. When you would go into that church and look on the inside... You could not deny that God was doing something through his church. I mean, it was incredible, the, the outreach that he had, the people that they were reaching, his love for the word of God. But in time, 
Uh, you know, as always, and this just happens, it, he, has, he had some families, two or three families, I don't remember how many, uh, but, uh, you know, over the course of time, they got mad about something, they left his church, and the, the pattern is everywhere, and they obviously trashed him, you know, uh, in his church, and uh, they left, you know, uh, they never came to him biblically to lay it out, they're, they're what I call the keyboard commandos. He, he called me. And I've known him for many, many years. He called me, and he, he laid out was, and he says, you know what, I, nothing you can do about it, Bob, but I just would like your insight, uh, you know, that I don't do something stupid because, you know, my flesh wants to do one thing, and I want to do what's right. And he said, I, I, I just need some advice, and if there's anything that you've learned through the Bible that you could give me, uh, you know, that, uh, that maybe you've learned over the years. And I told him, I said, you know what, your problem, your issue is exactly laid out throughout the New Testament. We think because Jesus' earthly ministry was over here and we are in the church over here that the situation wasn't the same. I said, your situation is the same thing that he faced in John chapter 10. In fact, I used John chapter 10 when I talked to him. Now, this guy had a church that God was doing a work through. His messages were right on line. And boy, I mean, I've heard him preach many, many times. Man, he's got the power of God, you know, and the example of that in people's lives. But just like John chapter 10, in every church, I don't care where it is, he had people who had no work of God going on, no power. Their lives, their families were terrible examples. Uh, they talked a good talk, but in the hotbed of a real Bible-based church like his, a church of God's power, it exposes them. Just like when Christ showed up, I'm telling you this because this is the practical side of these things. Someday, praise the Lord, if Jesus tarries his coming, some of you will pastor a church. Some of you will be in ministry someplace, and you're going to be faced with these things. Now, you've got a choice. You can either blow it off and just deal with it, or you can learn it now. And, of course, this is the key. This is how it works. There will be people, he had, that will talk a good talk, but in a hotbed of a church, as I said, it exposes them. The messages get too close to these people. Uh, when a guy can preach the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God takes it into people's lives, which is what he's supposed to do, and he'll show you and me what's wrong with us. Now, this message may clobber you up alongside the head today, but i got to tell you something. You're very lucky. You only got to listen to it once. I had to go through it 50 times this week. And it gave me a headache every time that I did. But this guy, you could not deny what God was doing. And, you know, people sometimes, and, 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 and I told him this, sometimes people, God's people, just have to make something that God is doing look bad. They need to do that because they're not where they need to be, and they want to make themselves look like they are. So they attack what God, what exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees did. John chapter 10 is a real key to you getting into the ministry. And I told him this. 
I said, in Jesus' day, you had the religious leaders who thought they were right. They weren't. They thought they had power. They didn't. And they really hated the guy that did. So I explained to him, you know, they had to get rid of Jesus, just like people like that have to get rid of a Bible-believing church. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, they left, obviously, and, uh, you know, he said that they trashed him, you know, which they always do, all over town, you know, making themselves look good at his expense. And, uh, and, I, and, and, and the only thing was, and here's what people don't see, the only difference was that God kept blessing his church. People kept getting saved. People's lives kept getting fixed. And the people that left, like the guys in John chapter 10, their life just was a disaster. They all lost their kids. They all had problems that, uh, you know, and yet they always talked the talk because sometimes, now listen to me, sometimes people have to make the things that God does in somebody else's life, whether it's a church or maybe it's your own life. They have to make you the bad guy because they have nothing in their life. And the quicker you learn that, the better off you're going to be. You know, the trained eye. I mean, the trained eye, the pattern, they're all the same. The pattern never changes. They have no work of God in their life. Their family's a mess. All their kids are screwed up. They're unteachable. And yet they all have, like the scribes and the Pharisees, this self-righteous attitude that they're okay when there's absolutely no power. And John chapter 10, Jesus himself said, the only way you know I am who I really am is not by what I say. It's the work of God through me. End of story. And, I, you know, I, 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 he, he said, you know, I gave him my advice to him was, he said, well, you know, what do I do? And I said, well, my advice to you is simply this. Don't do anything. If God is doing the miracles in your life and in your church and in your personal family, nobody's going to stop that. Amen. The fact that somebody doesn't like it, you don't take that personal. Do you see Jesus moping around and God, well, they don't believe me. You know, I came to Israel and I raised dead people and gave eyesight back to the blind. Those 5,000 people didn't have anything to eat till I fed them. He didn't do that. You know why he didn't do that? Because he had something that the opposition didn't have. It was the power of God and God working through him. And I don't care what anybody says about you. I don't care what I told this guy. I don't, wouldn't care what anybody says about your church. As long as God's blessing you, who gives a flip? But we lose sight of those things, you see. We lose sight of those things. I said time will prove all things. Uh, you know, and one of the great lessons that you learn out of John chapter 10, and I just pause to give you this for a second because many of you are in ministry with me. Many of you are going to move up the ladder, and, you know, uh, when I'm dealing with you young guys, I'm telling you, when you come over and we sit down and talk about the Bible, I see some incredible things that God's going to do in your life. And uh, so these are great lessons, and what you want to learn out of this is some things never change. 
The scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the phonies are always going to be with us. It's just the way it is. And the way that you identify them is not by what they say or not by what they claim. Not how much they claim they love God or how much they claim they're in the Bible. You look at the fruit in their life. You look at their family. You look at their kids. You look at what God is doing through them, and when it becomes a big goose egg, then you know what you're dealing with. I, I had to laugh this week. This, and I learned that. God, you know, God just kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, quit laughing. Get, listen to this. I was listening to Biden. No, and I don't, I, I'm not political, okay? I don't care. But I, I like to keep up on things, you know. I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'm the... Uh, I'm like the National Acquirer. I want to be informed. And I, I listened to Biden give his second press conference because he hasn't been talking much to anybody. And, uh, and, and, I, and I sat there and I started to laugh. And then God kind of used that as illustration. He, he, he was going, I mean, there are so many problems in our country today. I mean, where do I start? Well, I'll start with my list here. Inflation. You are paying more money for food now if you can find it. I go to the grocery store on Monday uh, to get my, my supply for what I'm going to eat through the week. You know, jelly beans and cereal and, and, and hot packs. And, and, and the shelves, I mean, I'm in high V and there's shelves that are empty. And then on top of that, you got the pandemic. Now, I understand he ran on the thing that he was going to crush the pandemic. Little did he know that the pandemic would crush him. <laughs> because here we are. And, uh, you know, and then on our foreign policy, what is going on in the Ukraine with Russia? Russia is on the border of the Ukraine. Now, I've been to the Ukraine. They're on the border of the Ukraine. Putin is just waiting to go in there and take the Ukraine back. You remember back before the Soviet Union fell, back when, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, the Soviet Union is in a mass. I think you go through four or five time zones from one side to the other. It's incredible. And they had the Ukraine. And then after the collapse, it kind of got split up, and the Ukraine became its own little U U Ukrainium, I guess, whatever <laughs> you want to call it. And, uh, and it's a thing where, now, and then, and then Putin comes into power. Now, Putin is something else. Putin was the, he was a, he was the, with the Russian Spanots, which is their special forces. He was head of the KGB for a number of years. Now he's the president of Russia. He's something to reckon with. Now, when you come to dealing with Russia, Russia only respects one thing. It's power. It only understands one thing. That is brute force. When you have a country, a president, any president, that is weak and afraid to stand up to Putin, that's all he wants. Because he know he can run over and nobody's going to do anything. It's, it's, it's the same old history repeating itself. 
It's what Hitler did in 1940, 1941 when he, took, when he took Poland, he took Austria, he took Czechoslovakia, he took all those countries in the lowlands, and nobody did a thing. Why? Because he was strong and they were weak. This is what we have today. So you're going to see in the next six months, he's going to do something. They're going to do something. Uh, I suspect that he's not putting 200,000 troops on the border because they're waiting for the Memorial Day rib fest. <laughs> they're going to invade. He's just waiting for the right time. And what will happen, and I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet, but I know history. What will happen is they'll sneak some people across the border. This is what Adolf Hitler did. This is how he took Austria. This is actually how he took power. He had his own guys burn down the Reichstag and then blamed it on the communists the next day, banned communism, came to power, put them all in concentration camps, and voila, there he was. He took Austria because he said that the Austrian Germans were being persecuted, so he went in to save them. There's people in the Ukraine who still want the Russians to be Russians, and that's how it'll happen. Just write it down. You know, I'm like that guy. You have problems or you want to know things, that plumber guy, Bob Hamilton. You want to know? Just call Bob. I even got the blonde lab. So I am telling you, this, our foreign policy is a disaster. You find a, you know, gas is, prices are, are unbelievable. Crime. Are you kidding me? Last week, five police officers in New York City were shot. It's rampant. And as I'm watching this with all of the problems, he comes up there and he says to them, and I couldn't believe it. He says, let me ask you a question. They're asking him questions. And he says, let me ask you a question. What president in the history of this country has gotten more accomplished in one year than me? <laughs> and I said, you have got to be kidding me. And about that time, God tapped me on the shoulder and he said, you know what? That's a good lesson for you, buddy. And I said, what's that, Lord? And he says, here's a guy whose whole administration is a dysfunctional mess. It's a disaster. He can't get anything going. And he just stood up there and told you in his mind, look how good a job he's done. He says, what are you laughing at him for? You've got God's people in your church do the same thing. Their lives are a disaster. Their families are a disaster. There's no power of God in their life. God, they've never won a soul to Christ. They don't do anything for God except talk a lot. There's no power of God's example, and yet they stand there saying, look at me as a Christian. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Listen, I'll say it again. God's work, the proof of my testimony and my life and I am what I say I am is not what I get up here on Sunday or how well I... T It'll be the same for me as it is for you. What is God doing through your life? John chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus ended it up by saying, Hey guys, he's in me and I'm in him. And you see the power of God's example in my life. That's what you got to have today. Now, a lot of great lessons in John chapter 10. Now today... We're going to move into chapter 11. And I told you last week 
that John writes the five wisdom books of the New Testament. And the reason he does that is because he is the greatest type of the church in the New Testament. Now, we're going to get into the Bible today. I know we were in it in John chapter 10. We've been in it all through, John. But I am telling you right now, you guys that have coming over to see me, these are the things you want to get into your Bible. John is totally different from every other writer in the Bible, certainly the New Testament. Because when he sits down to write his five wisdom books, no other writer has this. Paul didn't even have it. When he sits down to write, he has the complete New Testament and the complete Old Testament on the table in front of him. He came through the Old Testament, Matthew chapter 10 as one of the original 12. He transitions then into the church age as an apostle and then becomes a Christian. And he writes the five wisdom books in the Bible that of the New Testament that give you and me incredible insight. He has a greater perspective than any other writer when it comes to the Bible. Let me show you what I mean. So everything he writes needs to be viewed and looked at in that light. Now, we're going to talk a lot about your trained eye today. And, uh, you know, I, I asked somebody, I had a, a guy called me this week, and he listens online, and he says, boy, he says, that thing about the trained eye, he says, that, that, really, uh, that really was an eye-opener. <laughs> what a good choice of words. And he says, he says, you know what? He says, I thought about this, and you know, it was a great idea. I'll preach it at some point. And he says, you know what, in my own personal life, he says, I think of all the other things I've trained my eye to look for. He says, I like to hunt. And I said, well, great, nothing wrong with that. I got a bunch of hunters in my church. He says, yeah, but you don't understand. He says, I can go out there before deer season, and I've trained my eye to look for deer rubs. I've trained my eye to look for this. Now, why a, rub, why a deer rubs his head on a tree, I have no idea. He says, I, 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 I hunt. He says, I'll go out before turkey season. And he says, I'll look for signs. And he says, uh, he says, you know, he says you can always tell where the females are at. And, and of course, in the springtime, you can only hunt the males. And in the, and in the fall, you can hunt either one. So in the springtime, you've got to make sure that where you're at is not where the females, because you can't shoot them. And then you've got to lure the males in to have an intimate relationship with the females, and then you shoot him. That always bothered me. You get over there and you sound like a turkey that really wants to get with another turkey. And then when he comes in there and says, hey, here I am, bam, you get him right in the face with a 12-gauge. <laughs> Some things in life just are not fair. <laughs> and, and, but I'll tell you, gals, some of you would have been better off if you'd have practiced that the first time you met the guy you're married to now. But I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway. So, and he said, you know, he says, there's a difference. You can tell the difference between a, 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 um, a female and a male. And he's going through all this. He says, I have learned all those signs. And he says, you can tell. And he said, and he's like, I didn't know this. He says, you can tell by, the, he said, you know how do you tell the, the female turkey from the, uh, fr from, the, from the male turkey? And I said, I, I said, no, because I didn't want to act like I knew. He says, it's their droppings. And so I'm going to get into this. And I said, oh, by tasting them? 
And he says, no, the, one, the, the male droppings is in a form of a J, because they call male turkeys Jakes. The female turkey is just, it's not in a sign of an F, it's just a straight, you know, for female. And, I, and so he's going through all this, and he says, he says, and it hit me when you said that. I, I have trained my eye for all the wrong things. And I said, well, now, come on, there ain't nothing wrong with that. I mean, you like to hunt, you like to fish, you like to do those things, it's okay. You don't want to throw that away, but he said, but I get your point. We train our eyes for everything except looking at things in the Word of God. And that becomes a problem. And God's people today, if they have one number of fundamental problems, they don't have not trained their eye what to look for in the Word of God. So they just blow over things. So we're going to give your trained eyeballs a workout this morning, just so you know. And... Uh, you know, everything he writes, John writes, needs to be viewed in the light of how he writes. When I look at John, he does, as a type of the church, now he does, there's many examples, but he fundamentally does two things that the church should be doing today. And I see this trained eye. The first thing he does is that John chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus is being crucified, John goes all the way to the end. Nobody else does. The apostles all split for exit stage left. Peter, James, and John all are not there, or Peter and James aren't there. There's only one apostle who goes to the end and goes the distance. That's John. Now that tells me that this church, no matter what comes, hell or high water, this church should go the distance. And then the second thing he does is his position at the cross. He's at the feet of Jesus. He writes the best account of the crucifixion because he was there. The rest of them just got it by word of mouth. He was there. And he's right where any church, certainly this church, should be all the way to the end but at the feet of the Lord Jesus. You'll see that develop as we come through John chapter 11. He has tremendous insight into all that God is doing, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and what's going on around him, and we should too. Now, here's why he's so important. When he writes the Gospel of John, which we're studying right now, he writes that between 85 and 90 A.D., when he writes the book of 1 John, he writes that book between 85 and 90 A.D. When he writes the book of 2 John, he writes that book between 85 and 90 A.D. And when he writes the book of Revelation, it's commonly given the date of 90 A.D. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. That's all, when he writes his five books, it's almost a almost hundred years after the birth of Christ. We don't think like that. We don't think of time. We, we don't stop and think about the fact that when he wrote his books, Christ was born in Matthew chapter 2, around 4 B.C., it, 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 almost 100 years. It's 60 years, no question about it, after Christ starts his public ministry. And it's 30 years after the end of Paul's ministry. 
So when he writes as a type of the church, he has everything that has happened in front of him. And he writes with a perspective for you and for me, the five wisdom books to the church that are unparalleled, giving us a perspective and understanding of what God is doing. Now, we as God's people, we can have that same perspective. That wasn't something that was just given to John. John is a type of the church and go through all that that shows us that this church can have that same perception. This is what I work on with you. This is what I try to do. I'm not interested in coming in here and tickling your ear. I want to give you the Bible. I want you to leave here today, every day, whenever we're together, I want you to leave with a better understanding and a better perception of the greatest book the world has ever seen. I want this church to be like John. And that's my goal for all of you, giving you insight, having you the ability to look on the inside of what God is doing. So let's get some background today. Let's, let's get into John chapter 11 here, and let's set up some ground rules, some background. So as we go through this, <laughs> and man, there's some stuff in here will have a better understanding. Now, I'm going to read the first seven verses here, and then you just kind of hang on with me here. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. Now, a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha, his sister, and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith to his disciples, let us go unto Judea again. Now, Father, boy, as I stand here before this great chapter, well, as I stand here before this great book, Lord, I am overwhelmed at the incredible, incredible insight that you have detailed in this great book and in this great chapter. Lord, we as Christians, we go through a lot in this life. I know as pastors, we all do. And I know as Christians in churches, we do. And I know churches in general go through tough times. And I know, Lord, that uh, tough times are coming even more. But, Lord, it's coming to the Word of God. And, but those words seem so empty. It, it, it's like we tell people that, oh, the Bible has all the answers for you. Well, it certainly does, but it does you no good if you don't get into the Bible. So help us today get into the Bible. These are good people. I, I love these folks. I, I do anything for them. I, I love the young men and young ladies that we have and the times that they come over and we get to look into the Bible and talk about things and I get to plot a course for them uh, to learn their Bible. It's just, it's great. My investment in the greatest commodity that we have, the people of this church. 
So help us today to begin to lay the background here, to begin to see what we have, and we'll be careful to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, and the sake we ask it, amen. Now, this chapter, as I've said, is loaded. It will connect us to other verses and other places in the Bible that will unlock an incredible amount of material. Now, I understand that we've got a host of not a host, but we got people here that are on all different levels. I'm going to try to make this as easy for you as I can, as I always do. If you have questions about it, things that I can explain better, because obviously I can't take the time or we'd be here till tomorrow, and none of us want to meet the Chiefs getting beat tonight. So if I would, I, we, we want to go through this, but I'm here to help you with it. So, you know, uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look at some incredible material here. And bring it Thursday night, whatever you got to do, if I can help you, and we'll get it all sorted out. Now, laying out the types in this story will be key. That's really key of anything you get into the Bible. When you get into a story in the Bible where there are people mentioned, the first thing you have to do is define who those people represent. Because at face value, this is just a story about Lazarus and his two sisters, and he's sick and he dies, Jesus comes and resurrects him. Oh, come on, man. When you start to put these people into their play roles in the Bible, the whole Bible opens up to show you great truths about what God is doing with the nation of Israel like we saw in John chapter 10. Now, we will, again, just so you know, we will section this chapter out just like we did chapter 10. We're not going to bulldoze through here and and just overrun a lot of material. We're going to take our time looking at it section by section so you can get your notes down section by section. And then later on, like we do John 10, you can bolt it all back together again and have the complete picture. Now, the first thing I want you to see that this story here is a real one. This is not a parable. This is not like in John chapter 10 where we opened up with a parable. This is a real story. Our story will revolve around four real people who are key people in your Bible. First off, we have the Lord Jesus. Then we have a man by the name of Lazarus. Then we have Mary. And then we have Martha. And you'll want to remember that when you start something uh, in your Bible... Well, you want to, it's very important to always lay these people out uh, doctrinally, historically, and inspirationally so you can get a full-blown picture of what's happening here. We're going to do that for you. Maybe not today. We'll start today. Now, the next thing that I, I want you to see here is uh, that we have, we have uh, two sisters. And, uh, well, just before we get to that, look at, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Now, the Lord is here, and that will be the Lord Jesus Christ as we know, Jesus as we have studied him at the first coming of Christ, and he's coming to Israel, we already know this, and now his close friend Lazarus and the sisters send to him and say, Lazarus is really sick, and he has compassion on him, and then through the process of time, he goes to him. Now, let's look at Lazarus first. 
Now, first off, this is not the same Lazarus in Luke chapter 16 of the story of the rich man in hell. That's a different Lazarus. I just want to say that because some people get confused on that, and I, I understand that. But he in our study here will be a picture of the nation of Israel. You have to see this. He's sick with a disease, as Israel is, and he dies, as Israel is dead spiritually. So it's a picture of Israel's spiritual condition at Christ's first coming. Now, let's use our trained eye for a moment. Verse 1. It says, a certain man. Now, I've told you many, many times that when you find anything like that, a certain man or the story about a man or a woman or a child in the Gospels, it's a story that's going to revolve around you uh, have a picture of Israel uh, and their spiritual condition at the second coming of Christ. We saw it in John. The first one we looked at was in John 3, Nicodemus. And I showed you how he's a picture of the nation of Israel, even though he's a real man, but he pictures Israel's condition. In John chapter 4, we had the woman at the well, didn't we? And I showed you how she is a pipe. She's a real woman. She went to a real well, but she's a picture of Israel's spiritual condition. In Mark chapter 5, verse 40, you have a little girl who dies, and Jesus comes and resurrects her. And you're told this little girl is 12 years old. She's a picture of the nation of Israel. She's 12 years old because we're dealing with 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. See how it works? In John chapter 9, you have the man born blind. He's a picture of the blindness of the nation of Israel. I laid all this out. Over in John chapter 5, you have the man that was halt and withered at the pool of Bethesda. And I showed you that that was a picture of Israel's spiritual condition. I laid all that out for you. You know, over there in Luke chapter 8, verse 43, you have a woman who has an issue of blood. She's the one that reaches up and touches the hem of his garment. She has an issue of blood. And the Bible is very clear to tell you she's had this issue of blood for 12 years. Picture the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And now we come to John chapter 11, and now we have a man named Lazarus who is sick, and then he dies, and then Jesus comes and resurrects him. And this will be, again, a picture of Israel's spiritual condition. Now, now look at verse 3. Trained eye again. Let's see what you see here. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, Jesus, saying, Behold, him whom thou lovest is sick. Now, if you're, I'm reading through my Bible, and I, I know everything that I've just told you is true, so I'm looking for the trained eye, uh, not for turkey crap, but I'm looking for some things in the Bible that is going to really help me. What do I see there? What do you see there? Don't raise your hand. What do you see there? I'm reading that and coming through that, and she simply says, Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Behold, him who thou lovest is sick. Now, if I'm paying attention, I have a trained eye. That'll just jump right out at me because I should know that in the Gospels, there's only two men that the Bible tells me that Jesus loves. That ought to just pop up like, you know, uh, uh, like a bouncing Betty. It ought to just, just stand out. In John chapter 19, verse 26, you were told that Jesus loves the apostle John. And in John chapter 11, verse 3, you're told that 
Jesus loves Lazarus. Now the reason for this, and these being the only two men, is to show you the picture and the type that they represent. God the Father loves Israel. So there's Lazarus. You want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 and 9, Hosea chapter 11 and 1, Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Romans chapter 9, verse 13, all tell you of God's love for Lazarus, the nation of Israel. And so then with Lazarus, a picture of Israel, then we have John, as I've already told you, is a type of the church. And we see in the Song of Solomon and the book of Ephesians, Christ's love for the church. See, it's things like that when you have the trained eye to see them. When you're reading through the Bible, you're not just reading on the outside. You're looking, trying to have insight and look on the inside. Something like that would just jump up and you would say, whoa, wait a minute. I think there's only two men in that New Testament that he says he loves. Now, if Lazarus represents Israel and John represents the church, wow, there we go, there we go. So this is how you do that. It's not complicated. It's just, it's just, it's just training your eye. It's just disciplining yourself through your trained eye knowing what you should know about the Bible, knowing what to look for. Just like if you're going fishing and you know that in the morning I, I fish here in this part of the lake, in the evening I fish here. Or if I'm hunting, you know, there, I got to go here, I got to go here, or you got to do this. You, you learn those things. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But why is it that the Bible always takes last place in things? And it's just, it's just the way it is. Now, the next two in our study line here will be the two sisters. And there'll be three and four, Mary and Martha. And wow, what a study they will be. Now, doctrinally, you've got to remember back now when we started John, they will represent the two elements of the seven family members of the household of God. I gave you back in John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. You remember that? I took time to lay out for you the seven members of the household of God that run from uh, Genesis to, to Revelation. I, Romans 14.1, Ephesians 2.14, Ephesians 3.15. And I showed you how that there's different people groups through the Bible that represent different time periods in the Bible. And in the passage there, we saw the bridegroom. Well, we know the bridegroom is Christ. Then you have a bride. Well, we know that's me and you, the church, for 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, Matthew 22, Revelation 19 for Christ. Then we found a, a, a people group called the friend of the bridegroom over there in Luke 16, 16. And I showed you that that is the people that represented from Moses, the law, up to when Christ comes. Then we saw a group over there. We see them in Matthew chapter 25, and we see them other places, uh, a group called the virgins. And we know that those are tribulation saints. Then we found a group called the concubines. And I showed you that people group runs from Adam before the law up to Moses to the law. And you find them in Psalm 45 and then Song of Sodom in 6 verses 8 and 9 and other places in the Bible. And then the last group would be the queens. And uh, those represent the millennial saints. And you'll find that in 1 Kings chapter 10. So 
You remember when we went through that, and I hope you put those notes in your Bible. I hope you got that down. I, I'm laying this out now. You all ought to be saying, oh, yeah, I got that. Oh, yeah, 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 that's old stuff. Give me something new, Bob. You got to have that down. That was a major piece of your Bible. And it may not have it in your Bible yet, but you certainly ought to have it in your notebook to get it into your Bible. And I, I've showed you how that these seven family members will fit into the household of God that runs from God's beginning in Genesis all the way up to the ending before eternity starts in Revelation chapter 22, and they all go to the marriage of his son, the bride and the bridegroom, as you find in Matthew chapter 22. Now, I'd say this. Probably most likely, based on the information that we have, and we'll see this as we get into it, Mary and Martha probably represent that family of the bridegroom from Moses to Christ. And I say that because it's very obvious that at the time of Christ, we have two kinds of the nation of Israel is split. We have the ones that are still going by the law and following it, that would be Mary. And then we find the ones that are doing their own things and they're outside the law, that would be Martha. And once we get into their lives a little bit later on, not today, but down the line, you'll see how that plays itself out. That's what it looks like doctrinally. Now, along with that, the, the doctrinal application, you're going to see when we get to it that these two sisters, in, inspirationally, they are an exact picture of the two kinds of Christians you have in Christianity today. It's incredible. And uh, we're, we're going to get to that in time, but uh, there's some things, some groundwork we need to lay out first. Now, the next thing our trained eye, here we go, should see that the all this helps us to establish a further context that we're looking at. It'll be what takes place in verse 4. Jesus hears that he's sick, follow along, but waits to come to him till he's dead, and yet says a strange thing in verse 4 that has an incredible doctrinal impact, but I can't miss the inspirational for all of us. Jesus hears that he was sick, and here's what he says. This sickness is not unto death, but he died, see? But Jesus said, this sickness is not under death, but for the glory of God that the Son might be glorified thereby. Now, I understand here all that God getting the glory doctrinally out of Israel, coming back to God, the second coming, I, I get all of that. And, uh, but here's where he talks about, and, and Jesus says, this sin is not unto death, but he dies. And then Jesus goes to him, and through the power of of his example raises him from the dead. And uh, it's an incredible picture of, of Israel, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I want you to see how it applies to me and you. Going out of here today with just a doctrinal slant of things is not enough for me. You gotta face tomorrow. You gotta face the world we're living in right now. You gotta face the aspect of what we talked about of what's going on in our country that probably is not going to get any better. So inspirationally, do not miss what I'm about to say. He says this sickness is not unto death, but that the glory of God might, uh, that the Son might be glorified thereby. 
He's telling us that no matter what we go through in life as a child of God, it will never be unto death, even though we may die. Because in Christ's presence, based on the book of Romans, there is no real death. There's sleep with God, but there's no death. But God, he says, will allow us to go through things that Christ can be glorified by what we go through. Now, that's Romans chapter 8, verse 28 in action. Once you and I get saved, God wants the glory out of everything that is in our life. Good, bad, or indifferent. We, as God's people, have so far from God in the Bible that we think God is only in the good things that happen to us. We don't see, the Bible says, all things work together for good to them that love God according, according to His purpose. And may I emphasize all things. Everything. No matter what it may be. We just came through and are coming through right now what is called a pandemic. I call it from China with love. <laughs> Today, this church right here, forget everybody else, I'm not taking any responsibility. This church today stands having allowed God to get the glory out of what we all went through. While many of God's people hid under the rock, we stood and still stand on the rock. Uh, we didn't let it stop us. It, it just, it didn't. Like John, we went the distance. We will always go the distance. We allow God to glory, uh, glorify His Son by our stand uh, on His book. You know, I get, I get emails all the time, uh, not so much text messages, phone calls every once in a while, people who watch us on there, and they were going through some tough times, and they didn't have a church. They don't have anybody to go to. This is their church, and they're all around the country and literally around the world. And I cannot tell you how many people contacted me and said, you do not know how much I appreciate your stand of keeping everything going, not only on the YouTube, but in your ministry. Because that's what God, and it is a real blessing to me. And, uh, you know, and I, and I thought, you know, does anybody ever stop and just take a time out for the last two and a half years, we went through some tough times. Remember the goofy thing where we all had to split up and, and go into homes, 10 at a piece, and we all fudged on that and put 20 in? <laughs> we had a number of our people get sick. We, we had our whole camping program get shut down because we got sick. And we got our rear ends kicked over that one thing over the other. Hey, you know what? Those things never bother me. Because let me ask you a question. I'm not you, but I'll just ask the question. Everybody talks about the terrible things of the last two years. Has anybody ever stopped and counted the blessings out of the last two years? Amen. You remember before we moved here? The baptismal service we had? Yeah. Scores and scores of people lined up all the way. You don't know how many people, we broadcasted that. You don't know how many people contacted me and said, man, I cannot believe 
You know why that was the way it was? Because we didn't hide under a rock. We didn't shut the doors. There are pastors in this town, I'm just telling you, for the most part, they look for any opportunity to cancel their church service. If on Monday the nine-day forecast says it's going to snow 20 inches on the weekend, they're closed on Tuesday. I think some of them have a close in July waiting for the winter to come. We didn't close anything. And I told you over and over and over and over again, we're going to go through some tough times. Jesus went through some tough times. We find a way. We don't stop. We don't throw up our hands and surrender. There's people that are still lost. We had scores of people saved during that period of time. We had, I don't know how many people move from across the country to come to be a church here. In the middle of those things. I mean, it just, it never stops. And you know, and if you would ask somebody, wow, do you know how many people got saved while you were not here? They wouldn't have a clue. You know why? Because they're not part of what's going on here. God gave us this place. You see, when you do what's right and you go the distance like John and you try the best of your ability to stay at the feet of Jesus on that cross, the blessings just keep coming. The scribes and the Pharisees in John 10, they had the, they had the power, uh, you know, they had the example of their power, but they never had the power of their example. And although they were against Christ and everything he did, the blessings of God kept coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this church stands as a testimony of what he says right there. We didn't quit. I'm not going to ever quit. I mean, I watch these guys, you know, when they, they get into a pastor. I don't know what they do for 20, 30 years. But when they hit 65, you know, then they, it's time for them to retire. They actually think that they did a great job for Jesus. And now it's time to retire to the golf course or the lake or do whatever they want to do. Let me tell you something. When God calls you to preach and God puts you into a pastor, it's a lifeline commitment. There is no retirement. You don't retire. You may refire, but you don't retire. There's no, there's no end date on your ministry. You stay with it as long as you can, as much as you can, till you can't do it anymore. And when you can't walk up to the pulpit, then you crawl up. When you lose your teeth and you can't speak, then gum them to death. It doesn't matter. You stay with what God has called you to do. I've never understood it. It takes, what, 50, 60 years for any man, any woman to really get an understanding on what's going on with God and the Bible if you're in it. And then when you hit that point that you really have something to give, hey, I can't play volleyball anymore. I can't play softball anymore. I can't go out there and do the things I used to do. It's okay. The best part of me now is what I've learned the last 60 years. So what am I going to do now that I'm here? Go play golf four times a week? God forbid. Move down to Florida to the pastor's graveyard? Get me a little house up here up the street that's for retired pastors? Are you kidding me? You go till you can't go anymore, and then you go a little farther. That's in the Bible. I'll let you figure it out and find it for yourself. But that's why God blesses you. That's why God blesses this church. doesn't matter what the people out there that have no power in their God says. doesn't matter at all. What matters is what he's doing here, the people have gotten saved, the lives that are being changed, 
over a thousand people following everything that God's doing here. I mean, Philippians 1 6 doesn't say he began a good work in you and performed it under the day of COVID 19. Our fear will always put us in the rear with a gear, never on the front line. We didn't just talk it, we lived it. We believe. For me, all things that work together for good to them that love God, to them are called according to his purpose. For me, his purpose was more important than anything else that was going on. We have to continue to do that purpose. Nothing's going to stop it. Nothing. And I built you that way. I built you to be strong. I built you to be tough. I built you not to be a whiner and a complainer. I built you to realize that there's going to be some rough times in what we do. But you know what? Either we do it or we become an Episcopalian. We, we, we have to do what God has called us to do. His purpose has to be our purpose. Now, the next thing we see, as far as I'm concerned, will seal the deal on the context here. And uh, verse 6 and 7 says, he hears, going back to the same verse now, but we're going to look at it doctrinally. He hears he's sick, Lazarus. Then he waits two days. Wow. Trained eye. He waits two days and then goes to him. Now, your trained eye is getting a workout today. That means that he shows up and goes to see Lazarus, who's a type of the nation of Israel, and resurrects him on the third day. He purposely waited two days, goes to him on the third day. Now, why is that? You know that in your Bible, there'll be seven different ways the Holy Spirit of God will lay out the day of the Lord, the second coming, the approximate time, you know, times and the seasons. In Matthew chapter 20, he gives us an hour system. In Mark chapter 6, and in Mark chapter 13, he gives us a watch system. And then we have a seven-day system based on Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, that runs up through the Bible, uh, that the seven days of creation. And then he tells us over there in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that one day with the Lord is a thousand years is one day. So now we see that those seven days that have creation are a picture of the 7,000 years that man's going to be on this earth. And then there's a system that shows you the, the last three days or the last 3,000 years that starts at the crucifixion and goes to the, to, into the millennium, and that's the third day system. And as I said, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is as, key word in your Bible, a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. You know what he's saying? He's saying, when your Bible, one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So you see, God over there in, in uh, Genesis, he creates everything in seven days. On the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2, he stops, he rests, he sets that day apart, and that becomes the millennial Sabbath. That's why all the Jews' feasts always run seven days or multiples of seven days. Now, look at verse 9 and 10 going back to here. Uh, I'll stay in the Second Peter, excuse me. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Look at verse 9 and 10. The promise. The promise that he talks about in verse 9 and 10 is the second coming of Christ. That's what he's talking about. He's giving you a great key. So you have a seven-day system, each running a 1,000 years, 
total of 6,000 years that man's on the earth from Adam and Eve up to the second coming and then the 7,000 years is going to be the millennium just like it's laid out in Revelation chapter 20. And then you have a third day system. That's counting from the first coming of Christ to the millennium, 3,000 years or the third day. And when Christ waits two days before he comes to resurrect him that is dead now and comes on the third day, Lazarus being a picture of the nation of Israel, being resurrected on the third day of the second coming of Christ. Now, let me show you these in the Bible. Don't take my word for it. You'll want to get these down. Go back to Exodus chapter 19. Now, let me show you how an Old Testament passage back here, in this dry, old, boring Old Testament, how that uh, it impacts in an incredible way uh, what we're studying today and what we're looking at today. Let's read it. Exodus chapter 19, pick it up in verse 14. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people and washed their clothes. Watch it very carefully. Trained eye. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Wow. All the way back in Exodus. And come not at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceedingly loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the nether part of the mountain, Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai was altogether a smoke because the Lord descended upon it fire and the smoke thereof ascended at the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly and when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder Moses spake and God answered to him by a voice and the Lord came down upon the mount Sinai on the top of the mount and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain and Moses went up you know what you got there you got a picture of the end of the tribulation period. well just let me lay it out for you don't take my word for it a couple of things your trained eye ought to be looking at here. First of all, note in verse 15, he tells them to get ready for the third day. We've already talked about that, so we won't get into it. This mountain here is described in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, as spiritual Mount Zion. That's why they, they meet at the bottom of it, but they can't go up it. They can't touch it because it's the spiritual one over there that he's talking about that no man can touch without dying. Just throw that in for you. And now what we have here is a picture of the Jew in the tribulation period told to get ready for the day of the Lord on the third day. Now here's your trained eye. Look at verse 15. Come the third day, come not at your wives. Now what's that got to do with anything? Why can't you be intimate with your wife on the third day because of the fact that uh, what's going on here? Well, I'll just tell you why. That's because that the tribulation saints are like a divergence in Matthew chapter 25 and Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14. And they're told here not to come with their wives because they represent Israel who are virgins in the tribulation period. See how that works? Trained eye. Now, look at verse 14. Wash your clothes. Why? Because Jesus wants you to smell good? Why? because you've all been out in the desert for so long, why are they to wash their clothes? Because in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, and Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, the Jew of the tribulation is told to wash their own clothes. See how it works? Verse 16, on the third day in the morning, that'll be the fourth watch, Mark chapter 13, of the second coming of Christ, daybreak. Verse 16, lightning, that's Psalm 77, second coming. Thick cloud, Acts chapter 1 and 2, the book of Joel, second coming. The voice of a trumpet, second coming. 
Verse 17, and Moses, Revelation chapter 11, he's one of the two witnesses that represent the nation of Israel. He goes to meet God on Mount Sinai, picture the second coming of Christ. Now look at verse 20. At the sound of that trumpet on the third day, the Lord comes down in the morning and, and Moses goes up. It's a picture of the rapture of the tribulation saints going up at the second coming of Christ represented by Moses on the third day. Can't beat it. You see, it's all what you train your eye for. Look over at Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. Verse 2. After two days. He will revive us in the third day. He will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning. There it is. And he shall come as the, as the rain and the latter former rain upon the earth. Wow. All right, look at verse 1. Context. Somebody going to return to the Lord. Context. Verse 1. That person that's returning has been torn they have been beaten. They have been all messed up through the tribulation. And now they're going to get healed in the millennium. Verse 2. When? After two days. When? In the third day, he will raise us up. Look at verse 3. His going forth from Sinai. That'll be the root of the second coming of Christ, which I don't have time to get into here. You can go back here and you'll find in your Bible two places where somebody's told to take the shoes off their feet. The first place will be the start of the second coming and then the route going up through the King's Highway up to the Mount of Olives where the second person is told to take his shoes off. All in the Bible for you. And uh, in the morning, chapter 19, verse 16, this will be Christ in Revelation chapter 2 called the morning star. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he's called the day star that arises in your hearts. It's Christ. And what seals the deals in verse 3? The former and the latter rain, James chapter 5, verse 7. But we've looked at that many, many times. Now, the next one, real quickly here. Look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2, when we came to John chapter uh, 2, I, I laid out for you uh, uh, this great story that on the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. This is where Jesus turns the water to wine. And I showed you that it was on the third day it was a marriage and how that marriage is the picture of marriage of God's son that takes place on the third day. I mean, it's, it's all through the Bible. And now we see in John chapter 11, verse 6, that Lazarus is a type of the nation of Israel. He's dead. Jesus waits two days till he's dead. And then he comes to resurrect him on the third day. So looking at this story, we will see a number of things. But first and foremost, we'll set a context for our chapter. And as we go through this over the weeks to come, it's an amazing thing. This is what the Old Testament has laid out for you in the book of Ezekiel. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I took you through chapter 34, told you the sheep and the shepherds, lined it up to Israel and the scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then in chapter 35 of Ezekiel, if you just want to follow the chapters, you have the judgment of the Gentiles. Then in chapter 36, you have the regathering of the nation of Israel, like 1918 to 1948. Then in chapter 37, you have Israel raised from the dead. This will be the great chapter on the dry bones. This will be chapter 11, where we're at today. 
And in chapter 38, 39, you have the tribulation. And in chapter 40 through 48, you have the third day or the seventh day, however you want to count it. And now we're in the millennium, second coming of Christ. Off we go. See, that's how you, the Bible lays itself out. Now, I'm certainly not expecting you to walk out of here understanding all of that. But what I am certainly hoping that you'll do is learn this material. Train your eye. Train your eye. Train your eye. Train your eye to look in that Bible and look on the inside. Get insight into it. Don't worry about watching the Royals play or some other ball team play and being the umpire in the armchair that says, well, that was a strike, that was a ball. Forget your trained eye with that. Don't worry about if watching a game this afternoon, if they, they throw the yellow flag or whatever it is and, and all those things, you know, and, the, and you, they say, holding, and you say, he didn't hold because my trained eye didn't see a hold. Forget that. Get your trained eye right here. Train your eye to see what's in this marvelous book. That's the key. And all this is laid out for the New Testament church if you just want an easy composite of it in the three great chapters written to the church in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11. Everything I have given you today and will give you in verse chapter 11 will play itself out in that. Romans chapter 9 shows you exactly how Israel got messed up in great detail. Chapter 10 of Romans shows you that while they got messed up and God was finished with them temporarily, the gospel then goes to the Gentiles, us. Then Romans chapter 11 says that once the fullness of the Gentiles come in, God turns his attention again to the nation of Israel. And Romans chapter 9 shows you how they got messed up. Romans chapter 10 shows how we got grafted in as the wild olive tree. And then Romans chapter 11 shows you that God's going to restore them and bring them back. It's the key to putting your Bible together. It's like I said last week, understanding how to rightly divide the word of truth and the first two divisions is the Old Testament and the New Testament. What God is doing, and there's a lot to it. And we'll work through it together. And we today now have laid out the, the background of chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. Now we're ready to get into the chapter and start defining all of these things that we have seen. You leave here today, you understand the basics of what we have. We'll fill in the detail. You have questions, you have issues, you have things you want me to clarify, you come and see me. Bring it Thursday night. Whatever works for you. We will get it down. My goal for you is for you to have that insight that you actually see what's inside the Bible, not just on the surface. And everything, doctrinally, inspirationally, your own life, the things you have to deal with, the Bible will give you everything you need. The power of the example of God in our lives. Well, we'll hold up there. Ladies, don't forget, please sign up up here if you haven't done it yet. And uh, let's have a word of prayer. I'll see you all Thursday night. Uh, this. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us and for uh, taking care of us and, and for our church and the blessings. And thank you for our courage of our men and women here that, that are able to take the stand against anything. Lord, that we're not stopping. We're going to keep on going. We'll find a way. We'll do whatever we got to do, however we got to do it. But the word will never not go out from this pulpit. Help us, Father, to build up men and women who love the book, love you, 
and want to take a stand in these last days because there's some tough times coming. And what we have been through is nothing compared to what we're going to have to go through. But let us be found faithful, like John, all the way to the cross, to the distance, and at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for our sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.